0: That's slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly.
2: This episode is brought to you by BentoBox, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using BentoBox today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef.
3: Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Joe Campanelli. We'll talk to Joe about his new book and more. We'll taste a Miche Cirque wine that we'll talk about more for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Born in Queens, New York, Joe Campanelli, the kid with the Italian name, grew up with a Jewish mother. He attended NYU and studied abroad, where he found his love for Italian wine during a semester in Florence. Joe came back home with the wine bug and jumped right into retail and hospitality. He worked various jobs, including Italian wine merchants and babbo, before opening some of the downtown New York City's best Italian restaurants, including Del Anima, L'Artussi, and Amphora. He eventually packed all that in to open his own restaurants, Fausto and wine bar Lalu in Brooklyn. He also produces his own natural wine from Italy under the label Anona. Joe Campanelli has put his love and knowledge of Italian wine to great use in his new book, vino the essential guide to real italian wine welcome to the grape nation joe
4: sam thank you so much for having me all
3: right so we're talking to joe it's kind of special live at the heritage radio network studios at roberta's pizza bushwick we haven't been here in a while um does this studio look familiar to you joe
4: yeah it's wild for me to be on the other side of the microphone here you know i hosted my Podcast in the drink here at Heritage for five years or so, and uh, I've never uh, I've never been a guest uh, since I started hosting. Actually, the way I got the podcast is I was a guest on Michael Harlan Turkle's show. Oh, and I know, you know, we spoke a little bit about wine, and uh, and they said, you yeah, know, we could use we could use a wine podcast around here. And uh, I had no you know aspirations, and you know, back then podcasting was it very beginning it was very beginning was that like 2014 15 uh before that before even. i think 12 maybe that early wow yeah, to 11 or 12 and uh i had no idea that we would do hundreds and hundreds of shows uh and that one day it would be a, i'd be a guest back here uh back here again well it's good to have you here
3: and uh you look very comfortable um all right so joe i want to get right into it um, give me some background on your journey in life and wine. What I want you to focus on, you know, I don't want to hear about your second grade teacher or any of that crap. I want you to focus, I guess the launching point is how that semester at NYU in Florence really had an impact and there were people, that winemaker, you know, that had an impact on you. And then when you got back, and we talked about a little fair, a very fast, furious, and successful start in the hospitality biz at a young age. So try to cover that ground for me. Don't spend the whole show doing it because we got to talk about the book.
4: Okay, I'm I'm not gonna talk about my second grade teacher, but a little bit about my childhood I think is important to to show why my time in Italy was so impactful. You know, I grew up in Queens, New York, as you said, uh, as the only child of a single mom, and we never had wine on the table. We never had alcohol in the house for that matter. And, you know, I, I assumed growing up that was because, uh, we were, you know, money was very tight with a single mom. And, um, I actually found out later that my, you know, my dad passed away when I was two because he was an alcoholic as well. Um, so I actually didn't know that until after I got into the, into the wine industry. Um, but, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. Uh, grew up in Queens. I never met a farmer. I didn't. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I, did, I didn't see where where food was grown. I, I didn't meet anyone who had any like connection to their I grew in a can, right? That's what we thought, and okay. yeah, yeah. grew in the supermarket. Um, but I, I went to NYU. I took a, a class called Beverages my freshman year with a great wine teacher named Linda Lowry, and uh, I dove into that class. It was, you know, it was an elective. It was two credits. It was nothing, but I loved everything about it. I loved learning about, about wine. I then, I I studied abroad then in, uh, in Spain and Madrid for a summer between my freshman and sophomore year. And I saw there how wine was just on the table. It was, it was like water, bread, salt, wine, you know, it was just another thing and, and how it actually made the meals more enjoyable. Um, We certainly weren't drinking anything fancy. Um, And so I was like, oh, like I have a tiny bit of educational background. I'd see how wine can improve the experience. And then I wanted to study abroad again. I really hadn't been anywhere growing up. And so then I, I studied abroad in Florence. And I didn't know my Italian side of the family much growing up. And so being there... Uh it's in some strange way I felt connected to these people I didn't know. Um but what was really eye-opening for me was going to visit winemakers. I took another wine class when I was there and Florence is 30 minutes from Chianti. It's so close. We you know rent a little uh I remember the car is an Alfa Romeo 147. It sounds really fancy. It wasn't a fancy car, it was cheap, but it was great. And uh we drive 30 minutes and go down the strada del vini in chianti and uh you know i was always convinced that the best producers weren't on the on the strada del vini we'd have to go off the dirt road to find them and meeting these people who uh, were farmers first and foremost and then were connected to their land in this way that i didn't know was possible so
3: that was evident very early on before you even sunk your teeth into it that was one of the first impressions
4: oh for sure yeah just, i never heard people talk about their history and culture uh through a food product in that sort of way and to see their connection to it uh it was awesome um so when i got back when i got back uh from italy i uh, i walked into italian wine merchants I asked that, which was an all-Italian wine retail store on the uh, east side of Union Square. Union east. Square. And a, a sort of a totally groundbreaking store. There was the only store in New York, maybe the country, uh, that had only Italian wine. And showcased them in a way that said that these wines were special. These wines were worthy of a fancy dinner. And- but it had like the carpets and the dark wood and, you know, the...
3: Bottles were displayed loosely, you know, they weren't jammed in. It was like yeah. a salon almost
4: of Italian wine. For sure. It was like sexy. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I walked in there. I bought the second least expensive bottle of wine at the second least expensive bottle of wine. Um, they, there's only one bottle on the shelf. As you said, they had a dumb waiter went down to the cellar. The wine came up. They presented it to me. It was cellar temperature for like a $14 bottle of wine. They wrapped it in beautiful paper, put it into a bag, into a nice bag that looked like you're shopping at a boutique. (laughs) And it felt so good, right? And I was underage and didn't have a lot of money to spend, but they treated me so nicely. Um, And so on my way out, I turned around and I was like, I just got back from Italy. Would you take an intern? And I don't think people interned at wine retail stores. (laughs) like free labor. And, uh, those are the days that you could, you could, you could do free labor. And, um, they're like, sure. You know Uh, well, it, w- it wasn't that easy. They weren't like, sure. I had to meet with Sergio Esposito who's the founder and, uh, this, you know, the owner. Um, and, uh, they eventually hired me, but, uh, that was my first job in how long were you there? I was there for a year for pretty much my whole junior year of college. Were you in there like three, four days a week? Something please? like that. Three, four days so a week. So it was
3: week. fairly intensive. Yeah. And I still and thought... And
4: just absorbing everything. Just absorbing everything. Um, it was a special place because, you know, there was the retail side of it, but there was also an events side. Um, and I still kind of thought that I wanted to be to be with food. I didn't think wine was necessarily a career. I didn't mention this, but before I left for Italy, I did... a. a an internship at union square cafe in the kitchen. That's a good one. That's a good one. And they're the nicest people, right? It's union square hospitality. But, uh, after that I was like, Oh, I'm never going to work in a restaurant again like this. I'm not cut out for this. This is hard work. And, um, uh, so I didn't even cross my mind, uh, that this would be my, you know, this would be my career. But fast forward to Italian wine merchants, there's the retail side and then there's the event side. And I loved the events. We would open up a bunch of wine and I could tell people, I would research them during the day and then tell people about the wine. And there was a salumeria that I actually helped make salumi in a few days a week, too. I did a little bit of help with the cooking. Um, and then at night we'd have all these open bottles of wine and I'd bring them back to my dorm at NYU. Ah. I'd bring back Quintarelli and Jacosa <laughs> to a dorm. Gee, that'd be good now. <laughs> right? Fancy wines were yeah. being opened. And my first foray in, into working in Italian wine was with these really like Bartolo Mascarello, like these great wines that we think of today as sort of icons was like the, You know, I I knew they were really good wines, but I didn't realize that these were like the best of the best at that time. You hit the ground hard early. So they had a connection to Babo,
3: Italian wine merchants. That's right. right. And and that comes next. You said you wouldn't work in restaurants, but so what happens in between or
4: so, uh, in between I was, I was at NYU. I was doing a, uh, undergrad in European studies. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I started taking food studies classes, which that beverages class was there. Um, NYU has a good food studies program. I think so. Very yeah. Very good.
3: No, I mean, it's, it's known for that.
4: <laughs> and, uh, I, my senior year, I worked at the international wine center. They offered me a job there. I. Uh, my sophomore year, I started doing classes there. I did the intermediate sophomore year. I did advanced junior year. And then I, my senior year, they're like, do you want to start, you want to do the diploma if you work here? And I couldn't afford, I was already going super deep into debt with NYU. I couldn't afford to also add on more wine classes, uh, for, you know, on top of that. But they said, you know, we'll pay for your diploma class if you work at it at the international wine center. So I was like, sign me up. I really want to do this. Uh, awesome. So I did that for a year and uh, I studied abroad in Italy for a second time, came back from Italy and then worked for Vinifra imports, which is a, a, an all Italian wine distributor. They're the first to bring in a ton of great Italian producers that we we know of. And there were also, I think, uh, you know, uh, pioneers. And now there's a, a few importers and distributors that only do italian wine but i believe they were the first yeah uh, like and uh like Winebow was leonard lacassio
3: started as almost oh, italian right. and then it but you're right there were very few specialty places
4: very few yeah that's a good that's a very good call yeah. actually um and then my old boss from italian wine merchants uh a guy named august cardona uh called me up and said hey i hear bobo's looking for a sommelier And I had never worked in a restaurant in the front of house before. And he's like, I think this would be a really good opportunity for you. And I'd be happy to put in a good word for you because as you said before, there's that, that Babo Italian wine merchants connection at the time. And, uh, and I had read the GM there at the time was David Lynch. And I'd read his book, Vino Italiano, cover to cover highlighted, made notes. I didn't do that for my college textbooks. Like I, was, I I, but for vino Italiano, I, I, you know, and so when I, uh, when I interviewed with him, um, it was, it was like meeting an, an, an idol almost. Um, I was a little starstruck. I thought he was the man. I still think David's the man. Um, that's good. And, uh, yeah, it was, that's uh, like
3: the third person in an early story. Linda, uh, I guess Serge, and now David, I mean, mm-hmm. you had people that were good at what they did and were big influencers.
4: Yeah. I, I really benefited from people, for whatever reason, seeing something in me and then sort of encouraging me. Oh, well, it's not a coincidence. Um, but really, yeah, Linda and, Linda and August. Um, and I know August was uh, on the board here at Heritage for yes. a while.
3: Or, or years ago.
4: Um, so how long
3: are you at Babo? Not a long time. And when you got there, it wasn't dedicated particularly to just wine, right? Or was it?
4: I was a sommelier.
3: You were? Oh, right. I was was 23 years old. They called you a sommelier. sommelier, Right.
4: They called me a sommelier. And like
3: everything else, you were serious about it and dedicated
4: yourself. Yeah. I didn't realize at that time that being a sommelier in a busy restaurant wasn't only about wine. I was like, oh, I'm a sommelier and, uh, you know, and you really need to be part of the team. Um, but I think that's from my lack of experience. Have you ever read the book Heat? Oh yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that was your gig. Um, all right. So
3: I, I want to get to the book, but we have a big part to fill in. So get me from leaving Babo, and I think it happens pretty quickly. You get involved like at a super young age in the restaurant business in a scene that is like incredible,
4: right? Well, that's you. You another per right? Go ahead. That same former boss uh, of mine, friend of mine, August, who got me the you know recommended me for the job at Babo, also you know later that year said. Hey, would you want to open up a restaurant together? And that ended up being Delanima in 2007. So I was 23, and I lived direct. I had a tiny, tiny studio apartment above Delanima. Anima, lived right above it, and um, yeah, that was that was in 2007. Lartuzzi in 2008, and then Anfora in 2010. All hits, right? They did well. Yeah, thankfully.
3: I mean, uh, Delanima when you opened it was pretty much a hit from the beginning, right?
4: Yeah. There were, I think the real impetus for Lartuzi was just that we were turning away more people at Del Anima every night than we were sitting. Is that crazy? Yeah. And so that's why Lartuzi was not that far away and not that different of a concept. um, But you know, but bigger and uh, more approachable in in certain ways. Um, But we just needed more, we need more seats. They, I know you've been away from it
3: for years, mm-hmm. but I think they just opened Bar Toosie. Yeah. You know, which made sense. So all these restaurants, you were heavily involved with probably what people thought was an interesting, well curated kind of newer look wine list, right?
4: Yeah. Yeah. I was a uh, you know, the opening the operating partner and beverage director of of these restaurants and what I wanted to do at Del Anima was focus on indigenous grapes and that was something that i was passionate about i I took a class with ian Dagata while i was studying abroad in italy and uh when hearing him speak about indigenous grapes uh it was really influential to me and so my first list um at dell anima really focused on there were a a couple of wines in the early years that didn't have it but then as as i went on it went even more and more down and i actually told ian about this later about how influential that was. And he told me that I wasn't the first one of his former students to open up a restaurant and do an all indigenous, wow. which I didn't know. Uh, <laughs> so cool. just for the listeners,
3: just describe to them in this context, what an indigenous grape is. Cause yeah. a
4: grape is, to a lot of listeners, a grape's a grape. Um, well, this is one of the things I think is so interesting and exciting about Italy and Italian wines is that they have more indigenous grapes than probably anywhere else. And an indigenous grape is a wine that is really, it's grown in the place that it comes from, uh, that it originates from. And, um, you know, we love, I love Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Syrah, and those grapes grow all, absolutely all over the world. And I think there are really great examples all over the world. But Italy has more grapes that are just native to that place than, than anywhere else. And for me, that's the best way you can really get an insight to the culture, the heritage, the taste of that, of that land.
3: We're going to get into that when we talk about the book, but let's finish the front end. So you open the three restaurants with success. We don't have to get into detail, but you know, after years for a lot of different reasons, it's time to move on. Um, and you open your own restaurant
4: fairly quickly after you leave the other guys? Yeah. I left that group in 2016 and then uh, 2017 opened up Fausto. Right.
3: And what I want to do is talk about Fausto a little towards the end of the show. I want to jump into the book. So let's do that. Okay. Um, so I need to get some obligatory questions out of the way, right? So here they are. And I'll remind you if you forget them. Why write this book? You didn't have to. You did. <laughs> Why now? You know, based on what we talked about, you could have done it a few years ago. You could have waited. And when did the idea come together, you know,
4: firmly? So tell me how the project got. So I wanted to write this book because, uh, well, first and foremost, I love Italian wine and I've dedicated my career to Italian wine. Well, and- <laughs> the
3: lead up to this wasn't evident, <laughs> yeah. you know.
4: And I've done, so, uh, whether it's distributor, restaurant, I've done some retail? writing articles and retail Um, a lot of different, and then you you mentioned before I was involved in a wine project producing wine. Um, really writing a book about it is something I haven't done yet, but also, uh, Italian wine is the most imported wine into the United States. And I do not think there's enough voices. There's enough written about Italian wine. That's current that reflects the way people drink today. And also what's going on in Italy, at least in book form. Um, And, uh, I, I, I think, and I hope that there will be a lot more books on Italian wine that, that, you know, that this won't be the only one for a few years. I hope that we'll see more and more because it's, it's such a big and diverse topic and there's room for a lot of points of view. And I think it was sort of just time for, it was time for a new book on Italian wine.
3: I agree. I mean, it's the most imported wine, but we're gonna get into there's more varietals as you alluded to you know before um, so you decided how long did it take you to write it?
4: It took some time uh we i I wrote the the proposal in twenty eighteen um, and then the uh and then we shopped it around uh, I think we sold it at the end of twenty eighteen um, and then started writing it in twenty middle of twenty nineteen or so. Um and then handed it in at the middle of twenty twenty. Wow. Yeah. And Equal. certainly the uh <laughs> a COVID book. I guess the yeah, the middle to the end of yeah, middle of twenty twenty was when we handed it in. Yeah, Covid COVID kind of messed with things because I had a couple more trips that I was planning on. I had to do all of that I, that I couldn't go on. I had to do uh all of my meetings with my co author Joshua David Stein, uh virtually um, different I, I, dynamic. Different dynamic, yeah. I went with a photographer to Italy um, uh, before the pandemic, but then after the pandemic, uh, luckily he was based in Italy and he was able to do some of the stuff on his own and was able to help coordinate. But I really enjoyed our trip to Italy together. I would have loved to travel more with Otter uh, throughout.
3: Yeah. How um, how do you, or how did you, when you decided to write it, how did you want to differentiate this book from other books and other books on Italian wines, because you and I know probably in the last two three years a lot of good people, you know whether it's Aldo Song or Bar, wrote some really good books. You know when you sat down, it's like I don't want to just write a book. I want to write you know a definitive book. How you know what did you want to do to differentiate?
4: Yeah, <clears throat> and I, I agree with you. Raj books, Raj's books, and Aldo's book are great. And I've actually I benefited from. <clears throat> My editor worked on Aldo's book. Okay. So all of the knowledge that Aldo taught my editor, <laughs> uh, I'd asked her, was like, how do you, how do you know to ask these questions? Her name's Jennifer Sit at, uh, Clarkson Potter. And she just asked the smartest questions or make the best edits. And I was like, how do you know? And she's like, well, I worked with Aldo. And, um, and so that was really a crash course for her. Um, but, uh, I'm sorry. I was giving Jen props and forgot. <laughs> I forgot what your question How is. do you want to differentiate? Oh, you know, I mean,
3: like I said, it's, if you just wanted to write a book, okay. But I mean, your passion for Italian wine, it's like, we don't want another Italian wine yeah. book. So what was your thinking? Well,
4: I think it's the, the book is definitely my personal point of view and based also based on my personal experience. I think there's probably, there's, great wines that I've left out just because I, for in all of my travels to Italy and I've been to Italy every year, multiple times a year, except for these past couple, because of the pandemic. Um, uh, uh, But you know, it's very personal. It's also not meant to be encyclopedic. It's not meant to cover every single grape. Um, We mentioned Ian Dagata and his book, The Native Grapes of Italy is, was a huge resource for me, but that, that is a lot more information. This, this I want to be more of a story that you can read. Um, the, my, uh, the, I want it to be a little bit more of a, a travel and, uh, and wine book at the same time. Something you can pick up, open up a chapter, I, I open up a glass of wine, and enjoy it. It's,
3: the good news is it's somewhat encyclopedic, but it doesn't feel heavy and encyclopedic. But the information's there. I mean, don't undersell the detail you get into with grapes. You know, because when you you add up all the regions and how many grapes are in each region, it's like, Jesus, you know, and and we'll understand why with Italy. Um, Tell me if you agree with me. I think because of you and your experience, your age and all this, I would kind of call this a, um, a contemporary take, you know, on Italian wine. It's definitely updated and current, but you said it's personal and a story. And, you know, do you agree? I mean, is that one of the things you wanted to accomplish
4: for sure. I want this book to be contemporary. Like what is going on today in Italian wine? What are the things that wine enthusiasts like you and myself are talking about are drinking? Um, and so I included, uh, you know, I included things that, um, maybe you haven't seen in previous Italian wine books, like discussions of Petnat or, um or orange wine there's a whole section on whole emerging section styles emerging which styles, we're yeah. going to
3: talk about um <clears throat> the good news i guess is i had jancis robinson on the last show and she just finished her eighth you know atlas so you can update this you know every few years and you know uh, that, that's a good thing for you. Well, They'll probably, probably you know, it's a big step down from Jansen. No, no, that wasn't today. my point. <laughs> I wasn't propping me up or putting you down. What I'm saying is this is the type of book that five years from now the world in Italy will look a little different. You know, and you want to keep it contemporary. All right, so I read the book. You know, I loved it. It was an easy read in a good way, not easy like fast. And I got rid of it. it was something I enjoyed um, the way it was formatted. Um, So, you take a very specific and personal approach to how you perceive wine. And the beginning of this discussion is a little nerdy, you know, so let's get through it quickly. Um, I think the best way to set the book up is because you set it up this way is there's this appellation system of Italian wines or an organization of how, you know, they categorize wines. Um, Just talk about that a little. And it kind of drove you crazy, you know, to the point where you had to rethink, wait, you know, this that's there, let it be. But here's how I perceive it.
4: So just tell me about, you know, the categorization. Don't get too nerdy. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so Italy has a system of organizing wines that's it's based on the French system. Um, in Italy, they call it the, uh, the DOC or Denominazione di Origine Controllata system. And at the very top of this pyramid is DOCG, which, uh, fr- which presumably should be the very finest wines in Italy. And then the next would be the DOC. Which uh, you know uh, maybe a step down, but um, has a lot of the same controls at C part that that the DOCG does, uh, and then IGT, and then at the bottom Vino di Tavola. And when I say it's based on the the French system, it's based on this appellation system. And the theory I think is really great. And the the theory of an appellation is that if you put the name of something on a bottle of wine, on a cheese. Uh, on beans, even, you know, uh, it should taste like it comes specifically from that place. It, it putting the name on, it means that the name means something. It means as a specific history, culture, flavor
3: and requirement, you know, Chianti has got to be
4: 80% percent can whatever, you know, there's a uniformity or a requirement, right? right? And you sort of know to some extent what you're getting, right. um, you know, and I think yeah, some of the best wines, some of my favorite wines are really do fit into this system. But my challenge is that a lot of times the system is too loose and you can have someone making a true artisan product um, with all native grapes, all indigenous grapes that tastes like the place it comes from. And that's a DOCG wine. Or you can have someone making an industrial wine with French grapes, purchased yeast, like a ton of manipulation and that could also fit in the, into the DOCG and tastes like it could be made anywhere in the world. Um, and so to me that this system was not a system that, uh, that really, uh, sort of legislated the kind of wines I was most interested in.
3: So let's move forward. Cause you obviously didn't like it and have a disagreement. Um, so, you and the book lays it out, and I think this has been percolating in your head for many years. You have a more holistic approach, and it's the infamous three vs, <laughs> you know, which anywhere I go, that's all people talk about is the three v's. You know I'm very I'm kind saying? of you to say. <laughs> um, which is Vino, vero, Ven. Um, so first, explain, you know, what Vino Verovin is, and just get into each thing. Um, And I think in reading it, I I mean, I agree totally. I I almost think you need to add like an S, because I think the story is just as important and all that. But talk to me about Vino Verovin, which I think
4: is terrific. Thank you so much. Um, And I should give credit to my uh, to my co-author for uh, Joshua David Stein for sort of coming up with the idea of the Vino Vero then, because we were having these conversations about what are the wines that are most interesting and most important to me and the wines that are, express my, my theory behind uh, wine and what, what makes it that way. And I said, well, you have to start with wine made in a natural way. Um, but saying it's natural wine to me was just a little reductive. Like you can make natural wine in Staten Island or in Queens where I grew up. But if you're not a good winemaker and it's not good land and it's not a good grape, like it doesn't matter that it's a natural wine. So that's just one part of it. You also have to have the right, uh, you have to have the right grapes. Um, the grapes that are made that are, uh, in Italy, indigenous grapes, because those are the ones that are going to be the most expressive. Uh, those are the ones that are going to tell you the most about the place that it comes from. And then you have to have a talented winemaker who, because it, it takes nature, Uh, It takes the grape, but also takes a human uh, in order to translate and do that physical work. And you have to have someone who who has an understanding of what they're doing. Um, And so then in the middle of all of these things where it overlaps, where you have the right grapes, natural winemaking, talented winemaker in the middle. um, Then that's the center of the, of the vino vero vent to me. Right. Um, So native grapes, let's break it down. Each one,
3: native grapes. You mentioned indigenous grapes. I think in Italy there's two thousand plus varietals. I think from my perspective, you know, and you're the expert, is there's just been so much attention towards super Tuscans and, you know, all this other stuff that we forget about all these varietals and all the attention, you know, goes to the bigger grapes. So I think, you know, the book does a good job talking about the native grapes where they're made, you know, the 20 sections and all of that.
4: Um, Thank you, and I think that's been a big sea change in the last 20 years in, in Italy. Whereas 20 years ago, a lot of winemakers for their top wine, they'd use half an indigenous grape and, and throw half Cabernet Sauvignon and put it in a French oak barrel, and that was their fanciest wine. And I found that I was always drawn to, like, the second fanciest wine, which would be the one that's made more traditionally with, with all indigenous grapes. But right. now I think Italians are getting more and more comfortable with the fact that what they have to offer is unique. And anyone can throw 50% Well, there.
3: You know, as you said, they're embodying and reflecting the terroir. You know, so the grape is indigenous. They're not just making an indigenous grape to the third V they're making it you know artisanally Um, I mean you had said it earlier there's a big debate on what natural wine is and how you define it Um, I think for me you helped me because I think vino, vero, ven sort of is another way to look at wines and you know that how they're natural I mean do you you agree with that
4: yeah I I mean mean, that was definitely part (laughs) of your thought process it was. And to me making wine in a natural way and making wine without chemicals, uh, should be a baseline. Like I don't want to ingest chemicals. Um, and you know, I learned a lot about that when I, I also, I got my master's degree in food studies at NYU, like all of the different agrochemicals and what they can do to your body. I don't want to ingest that, but, but as a wine lover, that's not enough. Like it's gotta be a baseline. And then you also really need a talented winemaker and you need great terroir. And when you have those three things together, then you can find something special.
3: I think two out of three works all the time, either you know. Um, so, in defining natural wine, it—I mean, why even seek to find a definition, right? I mean, you've sort of come to your own comfort zone where these three things really, you know, define what a good wine is. All right, Joe, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about, you know, the guts of the book. I want to talk about, you know, the regions and emerging styles, you know, and I want you to get into the specifics. I think our listeners crave to hear, you know, specific stuff from you. We're talking to Joe Campanelli. We're talking to Joe about his new book, Vino. You're listening to The Great Nation on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. <laughs>
1: I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from Sustainability Managed Forests. 81A is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 tequila imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly.
2: Did you know that over 70% of diners research a restaurant online before ordering from or going in person? Your digital front door is more important than ever. Let BentoBox design and build you a beautifully branded website. BentoBox websites provide sleek design and seamless content management, creating impactful first impressions and converting visitors into customers. And with built-in commerce and marketing tools like online ordering, gift cards, automated email, and more, you can also grow your revenue and keep your diners coming back join over 8000 restaurants that leverage bento box to power their digital presence and deliver great hospitality visit getbento.com/chef today to get your first month free that's getbento.com/chef
3: okay we're back we're back with my guest joe campanelli we're talking to joe about his new book vino um So Joe, one of the things that I noticed in the book that's really important to the book, to you and to Italian wine is there's been a significant generational change. And I think the general the generational change is carrying on the good practices of the older generation or they're aware that the practices weren't good. Um, Tell me about you know, the generational change. I mean, all
4: like the Foradori's and the Pepe, you know, there's some great people out there. Yeah. I mean, I can think of the, the general generational change in Italy. Uh, It's, you know, you're, you're, you're so right about the new generation bringing new interest, uh, new ideas. And I hear this story kind of time and again, where every generation sort of rebels against their parents. So, the grandfather was making maybe wine in a very old school traditional way, kind of organically by hand, artisanally, the, you know, the, the father then buys, uh, the most modern equipment, uh, and makes the most modern wines. And now increasingly the daughter, uh, takes over, um, or son and, uh, and is, uh, kind of going back to the more artisan way of doing this for grandpa yeah right? yeah yeah those things are the way grandpa did um so that's happening a lot uh, as well that's interesting um
3: because it can go either way i mean it could they could stay the course and go modern or they can go back to other values and we'll talk about that all right so we're going to talk about some specific wines wineries and the generational change will fit in so most people when they think of italian wines unfortunately because we've talked about how many varietals and, you know, we're going to get into regions. They think of Tuscany and Barolo. Um, But beyond the other regions, there's emerging styles. And before we get into the regions, I want to talk about emerging styles, which... I think has caught your attention, and I think you spend a lot of time, you know, talking about them. So I think you talk about five or six emerging styles. I want to get into a few of them. Um, for me, it's hard not to ignore orange wines. Um, so give give the listener a little primer on, you know, what an orange wine is, and let's talk about some makers in the regions that
4: yeah, so an, an orange wine is a uh, basically a wine that starts with white grapes and then sees a maceration of the skins. So you can also call it a, a macerated wine, but that might be overly simple because... Maceration
3: is when the grape is in the tank, the whole fruit in the liquid.
4: Yep, the skin, the skin right. and the liquid are, are together. Um, if you start with a white grape, normally white grapes, they remove the skins to make a white wine or have a very, very short maceration, but... Uh, if you want to do an orange wine, you use those white grapes and then you have a longer maceration and you're pulling out some color, some flavor, and some tannin, some texture, you know, depending on the grape, uh, and, uh, making a, yeah, making an orange wine. And this wasn't really a style in the Western world, um, until, uh, Jasko Grovner. Uh, in the very late 90s, along with some of his contemporaries up in Friuli, decided that this was something that they wanted to explore.
3: What's amazing, it's, it's a fairly young, you know, thing. Um, you mentioned that you really didn't taste orange wines until, you know, 2005.
4: Right, my first one was, I remember it at Italian Wine Merchants, it was Grovner's first, I believe it was the first release of orange wine in New York, oh, really? of his, yeah, and we, just looking at the color and staring at the color and thinking there was this like inner glow in it and just being amazed by. Right. it. and no one knew. You know, it was with all of these wine experts. Everyone who was there,
3: there, hype with the wine coming in, or it showed up and everybody said, "What's this?" And
4: self-taught, or you know, I if there, I remember there being hype from my colleagues. Like, okay, I remember like, oh, we're gonna taste this new Kravner release. So it's was this thing so weird? Yeah. Um, and then when I opened up my first restaurant, Delanima, I had orange wine by the glass, but no one knew what it was. We had to give it away. And i always had it by the glass. And if you don't have it now, now, if you don't have it, yeah, we need to, we have two by the glass or three sometimes at, at Lalu. Um, and people want it, you know, uh, all year round. They, they, yeah, I, I feel like I was pushing orange wine and pushing the style for so long and now I very rarely want to drink. I have to be like in the mood to drink it. I know. Well, what's interesting, as you said, is it started
3: with a couple of influential makers in what is it, North East Italy, in Friuli, yeah. which is close to what Slovenia. That's right. You know, so there was that you know dual influence and all that Radicon. Um, so they set the trend. Now
4: everybody makes it. Yeah. Right. And it makes sense that it started there because there is there is history in that area of uh skin macerating white grapes
3: and the type of grapes that are indigenous to the area they do well every does really well with it um i mean are we gonna see like a sutter home orange wine i mean is the world gonna get to that i think
4: so i think you'll start to see like industrial orange wine if i'm sure it's happened already i don't know of it but i'm sure there'll be industrial orange wine or industrial petnat industrial you can even make industrial natural wine yes
3: That's, unfortunately, when we try to define things. I mean, things are not going in the right direction that way. All right, so that's orange wine. There's, you know, we broached it. There's a deep history, and, you know, we mentioned um, Gravener and Radicon, but there's, you know, some also good makers. You also take some time to take what is probably an underappreciated and misunderstood area, which is sparkling wines, Um, You know, champagne and sparkling wines, I think you'd agree with me, are more popular now than ever. I mean, who knew you'd walk into an Italian pizza restaurant and there's like 40 champagnes or something? I mean, that that didn't happen. Um, So get get into some of the sparkling wines of Italy that you cover. Everybody knows Prosecco. But, I mean, there's a whole world of, you know, just... Like great grapes and makers, there's great sparkling ones.
4: And you're and you're right. Uh, yeah, the, there's been a sparkling wine revolution in the in the world, in the wine world. Uh, but I think especially in Italy, uh, yeah, when I started in the industry, it was Prosecco, Moscato d'asti, and Franciacorta. And uh, Moscato can be very tasty, but it's a very specific application. And Franciacorta, it would just was never my favorite wine because I always felt you could spend a couple of dollars more and get champagne, and it was, champagne was very similar, but a lot better. Um, and, so, just clarify that for me. That means Franciacorta was okay,
3: but it wasn't cheap. wasn't cheap. At least Prosecco, you can get a cheap bottle and a buzz. Right. But Cortes, so why not step up a few bucks to champagne? All
4: right, so and then I never had Prosecco at my restaurants. I was like, everyone knows Prosecco, and for me, especially when I, one of the things that I loved about wine so much was the sense of discovery. So I wanted to have sparkling wines. Even if someone wanted Prosecco, it's like we're not Prosecco, but we got Lambrusco Bianco. Like, and they'd be like, Lambrusco Bianco, what's that? And having that moment of discovery. Uh, what I, I, loved it and I wanted to share that with people, but it was so hard and limited then to find interesting sparkling wine and Italy has dramatically changed. Uh, indigenous grape sparkling wines. So delicious. I just tried, uh, I did a, a book event on Sunday at slope Cellars, and they opened up a Ferlani, uh, Alpino from Trentino and it's made from the noziola grape. And boy, this is a pet net wine for like $20, $25 retail. And, uh, it was expressive. It was complex. It was delicious. We just kept, kept drinking it. Like I couldn't stop drinking. It was such a good, such a good wine. Um, and there just weren't sparkling wines that long ago in Italy that, that so, said something about where it came from. So cover
3: know. the bases. They're making pet nets, pet you nuts, just talk. They're they- making Prosecco still Lambrusco. They make Lambrusco Bianco but the art form of Lambrusco has elevated. They're making method
4: Champagnois or in Italian, what do they call it? Um, they call it Metro Classico, right? Metro Classico, which so is they're making making, uh, making that from indigenous grapes too, which I think it makes some really cool wines. Like coast down in Sicily is doing one Ferrando up in, uh, Carima is making one from Herbaluche, Um, and then, you know, using a lowly, old-school heirloom traditional Italian grape and this very expensive time-consuming process of the metodo Classico or Champagne method. Uh, I think that's interesting, and those are some expressive wines. But you really covered it. Petnat, Petnat's the big the big change, and you can have some really tasty, expressive wines at a low cost. Madeira Classico is going to be a little bit is going to be more expensive, because it's more time consuming, but those can be really expressive. Um, and uh, and Lambrusco has has increased the quality. I feel like every year you're like you see an article, Lambrusco is really worth drinking. Pizza wine, or and now for me the biggest coup is that I'm proud to have Prosecco at the restaurants because there's even been a artisan changed-
3: makers is- using indigenous grapes. In Prosecco, too. Pinot, Vero, ven Yeah. All right? Um, so, just for my thick head, they're using the, the champagne method to double ferment with indigenous grapes. Because everyone knows champagne is predominantly Pinot, Pinot Noir. Uh, pinot Noir... What am I missing? Chardonnay. Chardonnay and... Pinot Meunier. Meunier. They're using the same method with indigenous grapes. Right. So the range of what's interesting is unbelievable. Um, and in the book, you get into pretty good detail about makers and all that, which is a nice thing about the book. We'll get into that. All right. The last thing on emerging things I want to talk about is, again, when people think of Tuscany and Barolo, people, when they think of Italy, think of red wines probably first you do a section on something we talked about a little, which is ageable whites. You just can't take a white wine and put it away. You know, you have to create a wine that's ageable. Talk to me a little about, you know, what what an ageable white Italian wine is, um,
4: why it's ageable. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm glad you're asking about, about this one in particular because I still find that uh, a lot of people I speak to think of Italy as having great red wines now and maybe like throwaway whites, you know, and they right. don't realize That's my that point. the white wines when they're made well can be so expressive and it, yeah, it's not just age worthy whites, but the, the idea that Italy has world-class white wines that are expressive and are, uh, you know, super delicious. So I think of kind of two things. There's, there's been sort of a trend of producers aging their white wines at the cellar for a long time and then releasing them late. Like I can think of like San Lorenzo in, um, Verdicchio uh, at AC. They have, they make a wine called Il San Lorenzo that they age on the lees for eight years before releasing, um, which is, which is wild. And, um, those wines, especially in cooler vintages can be like really beautiful. Um, or why, or producers like, um, there's a producer, Colle Catone, they make wine called Colle Gallo <laughs> that they age. It's a white wine from Malvasia and Lazio. And uh, I think their current release in New York is like 2007 vintage. Yes. <laughs> it's a white wine from Italy and it's beautiful. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I I think that the, there's this been this sea change. Oh, then I guess the third thing, the third way, is someone just making a really high quality white wine that hap, that they release young, but happens to be super age worthy. Like um, I just drank uh, uh, Fonte Canale from Tiberio a few days ago. It was a 2018 vintage, which is their current release. But boy, if that wine could age 10 or 20 years, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. It was really beautiful. Um, so I think when people think
3: Italian wines, they should think white too. And, you know, a nice summer Vermentino or something is terrific. But there's also white wines that are aged with body that could sit in your cellar. So uh, that's part of the book. And, you know, that should influence people.
4: And if you're just starting a cellar, um, uh, I think Italian, good quality Italian white wines are a good place to go uh, because they're not going to cost that much compared to other. So if,
3: if we have time. Yeah. Joe, if someone was putting together a case of Italian wines to enjoy this summer, give me some recommendations. And I don't mean just summer wines. I mean just, you know, ageable, all that. But we'll get to that Okay. because I don't want to jump to that right away. All right. So we talked about orange wines. We talked about sparkling wines. We talked about ageable white wines, which are some of the chapters joe you know there's rosati rose and other ones Um, but i wanted to get into that because i thought those were interesting um i mentioned off air that it's going to be tough to talk about an important part of the book which is how you get into detail with 20 different regions which i think is the bulk of the book and the beauty of the book and just explain how it's set up you get to each region and you kind of get a dose of this this and this tell everyone you know what they're getting so you go to Trentino, Alto Adige, or Tuscany, and in each chapter you'll get.
4: Yeah, and so Italy has 20 different regions. We can kind of think of them as states here in, you know, in the United States, and each one of them makes wine and uh, makes unique wine from their own indigenous grapes. And so each region, we start with uh, writing about what is going on in this region now. What's most the current topics uh give an an idea a little bit about the geography and the history of the region but not too much it's more about what's what's really current um and then we uh then i write about the most influential producers um the ones who are really uh of the moment and pushing the conversation forward and the most important indigenous grapes right and that's
3: constant throughout each region um and there are regions everyone heard of, and probably there's a few that people have, you know. You know, so everything is covered. Um, can't get into every one of them, but I'll ask you the base fund questions. Where, when you look at those regions, where are the most exciting wines today mm. coming mm. from? Wow, it's think hard, about. But... Uh, no, I know, and then maybe there's two, three, four, you know, answers. But what have you been buying more of lately? Who's impressed you? You
4: know, when you think about who you fawn over, who is it? Where they're from? You know, that's how to answer that question. I mean, there's. There's no doubt that Sicily is like the most or one of the most dynamic places uh, for winemaking in Italy. And it's been constantly changing for the last 20 years, uh, ever since like the the rebirth on, on Mount Etna um, and what Ariana Pinti is doing down in Vitoria area. And then even up in the northwest in Marsala, there's, you know, with Marco de Bartoli and Nino Baracco and just uh, a bunch of... Interesting wines from a place, even in Sicily, that we didn't necessarily think, you know, that would be the, the spot. So Sicily is the obvious answer. Uh, I think maybe the less obvious answer is uh, Lazio, where Rome is the capital. L-A-Z-I-O. L-A-Z-I-O, Lazio. People may think there's a T in there. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> right. Um, you have the, uh, this great indigenous grape, Cesanese, uh which is... Uh, Spell C-E-S-A-N. E-S-E. Cezanacea
3: the grape. Okay. Cezanacea the
4: grape. So we look all this up. Yeah. Go ahead. And I kind of think of Lazio, you know, if you, there's a lot of young winemakers there as well. And if you want to start a new vineyard, you're not buying a vineyard in Barolo. It's too expensive and there's nothing available, even if you have the money. Um, But in Lazio, you can buy some, uh, a great vineyard on volcanic soil or close to, close to a lake uh, and there's some others like new like young exciting producers you can share ideas with and you can experiment you can take some risks and uh, it's It's not it's cool it's a cool
3: area it's funny you say Sicily because when I read the book I said you know what let me go to each chapter and count how many pages he devoted and of course Piedmont got a lot of pages um, Tuscany got a lot of pages but I think Sicily was like third or fourth I mean it just went on and on and on which You know, makes sense to your answer. Um, What about, in the same vein of questioning, what about a more traditional area that's, you know, doing some cool stuff? Does anything come to mind? Eric Asimov can't stop talking about Chianti for the last three
4: years. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what came to my mind, too. And even think of, like... um, you know, like Panzano, uh, which is where which is where Fantodi is located and Monte Bernardi and Rampola, um, they're turning that into a totally green zone with no uh pesticides even on the side of the road. And how cool is that? Um so I think that's uh, yeah, uh Tuscany uh, is sort of reinventing itself. And in Barolo, too, like at, when I first started going to Barolo, you'd see no grass between the vines at all, right? And it seems these days it's a lot more alive. There's a lot more organic producers there. Um, and there's there's grass between the vines. Uh, and But
3: also varietals. I mean, you thought of Barolo as Barbaresco, Barolo, Barolo. Um... Barbera, you know that. You know now there's Lange and Pella Vergas Am I pronouncing it right? Pe- yep, Pella Verga. You know there's
4: some cool varietals. I guess you could say you're reminding me too that you know Alto Piemonte, the northern part of Piedmont. Right is a really exciting area. And there's still, you know, uh, there's uh, a producer named Cristiano Guerrella, um, who has really been such a big champion for the area and he has his own label Colbar Guerrilla, is with his partner and has consulted on a bunch of others and <laughs> um, and then uh, Roberto Conterno bought the Nervi estate. right. And so we're further up north, a more acidic soil, it's a little bit cooler. And you can, uh, it's a lot of times the same grape as you see in Barolo, but at a lower alcohol level, less expensive, doesn't need to be aged as long. And so there's stuff going on that's worth paying
3: attention to. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Alto Piemonte for sure. Um, If we, so you've traveled, you've drank, and you wrote about these regions. If I had to say to you, if we had to go to one or two regions to find the best values, because let's say my kids are intrigued by this interview, but. You know, they're not going to buy, you know, Conterno, Mascara. What regions do you look for? And generally, you know, if you look at the book and look at maybe the dozen winemakers, what comes to mind?
4: Yeah. Well, I think that Campania whites, especially from the Fiano and Greco grapes. Grapes. More so than Falangina. I like Falangina too. But uh, Fiano and, and Greco, like you can have very complex, mineral-driven white wines for $20 retail, 20 to $25 retail uh, drink above that price point. I think drink. Yeah. Way, way above that price point. Um, what uh, about red? And then for reds, um, there's so, there's so many, I think, I almost think any obscure Italian red grape made by an artisan winemaker It's not going to be that expensive and is going to be pretty delicious. Uh, It's kind of
3: built in that that's going to happen. Yeah. You know, you go to an artisanal small winemaker to a region and he's growing indigenous grapes and vinting them. It's going to be good.
4: Yeah. I really like this grape uh, called Schiava from up in uh, uh, Trentino Alto Adige. It's a very light skinned, medium bodied uh, red grape. Um, and in the summer, be really good with a chill too. But I think they max out at twenty five dollars retail maximum. Those are good
3: ones. Um, last question on the regions: Is there any region where there's really a story, like in the last, like something that sticks out? I mean, obviously, when you answered the other question with Sicilian wine, Sicily certainly fits that category. But is there anything going on in any region? I guess you could say orange wines in the Northeast, you know, any other story that just writing the book stuck out?
4: Oh, Oh God. There's so many, there's so many stories. That is is the uh, essence of Italian wine is that there's, there's so many, uh, there's so many stories. And um, my team at uh, Del Anima used to make fun of me because I would always say that my favorite wine is a wine with a good story. And, And I feel like if it's a wine made by, a person human, event. right, an artisan wine, then you want an, then that 's a good story you 're talking about a family uh, it 's not a, a big corporation, but I think the real what 's emblematic of the story of Italian wine is what 's going on on, uh, on Mount Etna in a way, in that you had this jewel that was uh, right in everyone 's backyard. people have been going to Tarmina. Forever since ancient Roman time, it's always been a fancy place to go. And when you're in Taramina, you look up and you see Mount Etna, and Mount Etna has ancient, ungrafted, bush trained Norello Masculace vines that make some of the most expressive, beautiful wines in the world. And other than Bonanti, um, almost no, you know, people weren't really doing it until Frank Cornelissen came and then Andrea Franchetti and and so on and so on. And that was only 20 years ago. And now, and now people realize, wow, Etna, there's so much to offer from this native grape, Norella Moscolese, making wine in an artisan method, which is the kind of the only way you can do it with bush train vines, um, they're low yielding. You can't mechanize on those Hills. And, uh, and now Italy realizes a lot of Italian uh, producers realize this is what we have to offer the world, not another Cabernet Sauvignon
3: that is that is a good story and that is a good region and those are great wines alright we have to address a few things you have to do the wine list I want to taste this wine and talk about it but I wanna revert back to two things do this quickly for me put a case of wine together for me let's say three bottles each four different wines Range of price. Nothing too crazy on the high end. Obviously, there's no crap on the low end. Um, what am I bringing out to the beach?
4: Do you want to do... Uh,
3: like hey, you're the guy who white... wrote about Rosati, <laughs> sparkling, ageable. You, you know, just go.
4: Um, oh, there's so many. This is you sad. do this for a living, and now you're like shell-shocked? Yeah, you know, if there were just a couple of options, it would be a lot easier. right? For, I guess, my easy, my go-to white wine is, uh, my house white wine is a Chiro Picoriello Fiano 906, uh, a single high elevation vineyard. Um, it tastes like salt water and, uh, it, so good uh, with shellfish seafood. Yes. Good acidity for food. And good all acidity of. for food. You can sip it on its own, which okay. Italian wines are so made for So That's one of your whites. That's one of my whites. Um, I love sparkler the sparkler or a rosé. Let's do the rosé, the defermo. Um, uh, it's called Le cinche and the appellation is Cherasuolo d'abruzzo. it's a rosé, uh, made from the Montepulciano grape, and it, this is a rosé with personality. It is a rosé with character. It is, I, I absolutely love this Word one. Where does the
3: fall retail?
4: High, high 20s, I would okay. say. So it's a good quality. All right, so now we have
3: two skews. We need a couple of reds. We need a couple of reds. Probably a crunchable red, which we had mentioned before, and maybe a traditional red. I mean, some of the Sicilian reds have nice body.
4: Yeah, yeah, I have a hard time not always recommending the Ariana Occhi Pinti's for Pato. I, I buy that one by the case. Okay, that's uh, great. I mean, people should be
3: drinking that. So that's one. Give me another one.
4: And then uh, a more structured, sort of a bigger red also?
3: Yeah. Let's do... You
4: can't leave the Italian category without throwing one of those. <laughs> um, you know, I, if you're doing something a little bit more traditional, there's a new producer... In Barolo, uh uh named Julia Negri. And she is a rock star. Um, she is very a very, very high elevation vineyard. It's above uh Brico delle Viole, which is Giuseppe Vira's high elevation vineyard, and hers is just a little bit higher up the hill. Um, and she spent some time in Burgundy and uh takes a Piemontese Burgundian approach to her winemaking, and those wines are so beautiful. I would I I would do her N E G R I N E G R I Negri, and it's it's just rare to find a new like a young new winery in uh, in uh, in uh, Barolo, and uh, she's like all of thirty years old and she's killing it.
3: Something to look out for. All right, before we get to our two last features, um, let's talk about your restaurants. You're celebrating five years at Fausto, Uh, Lalu the wine bar came a little after. Um, that's a big deal in New York. That's a big deal in the middle of COVID. Um, would you say these restaurants are a canvas for you to get all this love and these Italian wines out there? I mean, what better, right? (laughs)
4: Um, I, I, I don't know about a canvas for love. Uh, uh, but there, there, I, I feel like we're able to really sort of vote with our dollar in a way and support the farmers, uh, that we really care about. And so, um, but that's what I meant. Yeah. I mean, your love is it's, we've talked about, you know, the
3: winemaker, their process and all of that. So you're able to carry that through.
4: Yeah. And it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's like an honor. Honestly, it's an honor to it's so they do the hard work. We just, I just, Buy the wine and yeah, you know, tell the story about it. I know you know podcasts
3: are time sensitive, but I know you're doing. Are you doing an event? Or are you having? Is it Pepe in or I have uh, Chiara, uh,
4: Chiara Pepe, the granddaughter. That's of a big deal. The media is going to be at at uh, Fausto on Monday. Right. Um, we just had uh Bon Tempo, who's the uh, daughter Stella, of Stella di Campalto, who makes some of the most stunning you know,
3: uh, Tuscan wines. I agree. That's one of my favorite. Yeah, that was a nice grab by you. And I want to mention your chef and partner, Aaron Chambor, is making incredible food to pair and, you know, to be compatible with these
4: wines. Uh, That's true. And then we, we just... You know, we had some staffing issues during COVID, and we're, we're just Ooted. now in a in a good place and so she's finally fired up the wood fire ovens at fausto again. so it's there things go. are good there yeah. so look for fausto
3: and lalo in brooklyn i'll give you at the end of the show where you can find that All right, Joe, the uh grape nation wine list five questions i added a sixth for you don't obsess over these quickly all right So the first question is, what are you drinking now? What's in your fridge at home? What are you tasting for the restaurant? Seasonal changes? Give me a couple of answers to that. So you
4: know, with the with the research for the wine book, uh, it's been so Italian. Uh, I've been drinking so much Italian wine, and I made it a point. You know, I love French wines. I really love Spanish wines. I love some American wines, um, but I made it a point that since the first of this year, I'm going to drink Italian wine every single day and through now through now i'm gonna go throughout the year like it's so me give italian me one or two day. things in the fridge or uh, i have to say i i've not uh, duplicated the wine and i've not gotten bored yet so wow. it, it is uh so you're yeah. drinking through everything i'm drinking through okay, so, so that, much italian wine. that's
3: the answer i mean that makes sense to what you're doing how about joe campanelli's favorite wine and food pairing not something you eat every night not something every month and not what you think is a good pairing but what do you think works?
4: Yeah, I my my favorite pairing, honestly, is on Saturdays. My partner Alyssa and my son and I go to the farmers market in Park Slope, and we get fish from our favorite fish uh, purveyor called the Fish House. They they're out of Montauk. They catch fish in the morning, bring it to the market. And then, uh, and then we'll we'll cook uh, fish. Either we'll like fry up some skate, or we'll do um, like bass with uh, like roasted tomatoes and capers and olives, uh, and open up a, a glass of uh, a, a, usually Italian white wine, uh, whether it's like Verdicchio or or Pigato, um, and that sort of like midday lunch glass with a fresh So a freshness. nice
3: white Fleshy fish, not necessarily, but you just described too, with a nice white crisp Italian. Pigato's like Vermentino, too, right?
4: Pigato's like Vermentino, yeah, Yeah, both from Liguria. Right, terrific wines
3: for that. All right, good answer. All right, third question favorite all time wine. When I initially structured this question, the question was, What's the most expensive rare wine Joe ever drank? I, I could give a crap about that. the question is, what's that wine that was either the gateway or changed the way you thought about life, life-changing? I mean, this may go back to Florence or that wine store, or maybe
4: even Italian wine merchants. What's that one or two
3: wines?
4: Yeah, the the wine that's really my favorite wine, it's the one that I drank the day the book uh, was released. Um, is the Poderi Le Bonchier. Um, and they used to call their wine Chianti Classico, but they've dropped out of the Appalachian since then. And I love this wine so much uh, because when I was studying abroad in Florence as a sophomore in college, uh, there was a wine store up the block from, from where I lived. And um, and I went in one, bought a wine. It was delicious. And the wine, the purveyor was really nice. And then uh, I went to a restaurant, bought a very expensive bottle of a famous named Chianti. I'm not going to say the name, but I went back to the wine store and I I told the owner, I was like, I drank this fancy Chianti last. I was like excited to share it with him. And he said to me, non è un vino vero. Like that's not a real wine. Here, have this. And he gave me a bottle of Le Bonchier Chianti Classico. it's like, this is an artisan wine. This is a real wine. And... I clicked, it clicked. When you drank it, you got it right away. When I drank it, I understood right. This was like a fraction of the price of the other wine. And it smelled like the trips that I made to Chianti. And, um, and I've always been searching for that between that. And, you know, the few producers I met on my trips to Chianti that felt connected to their land. I've always been searching for that.
3: That's the way you answer the question. I skipped the question. So we have to go back you own a restaurant you have crazy hours you have a little kid now you've been writing a book but when you go out if you go out or when you went out favorite wine restaurant and or bar who does it well like i would answer lalu great food great wine people who are picking the wine give a shit about it the vibe is great
4: who else outside of your spin is, you know, doing good stuff? Thank you, Sam, for saying that about Lalu. Um, you know, as you said, I had a kid, so I haven't... Uh, yeah, listen, I had this uh, this beautiful baby boy, and so we haven't been going out a ton. But when I do, it tends to be in Brooklyn and in, in our neighborhood, and we do have... Some really great wine programs like Daniel Eddy at Runner Up. Um, I love what Rebecca's doing at Red Hook Tavern. They had a fire they're about to open up yep. soon. I'm excited about that. Four Horsemen. Will Durney's place, yep. Will Durney.
3: Yeah. Four Horsemen is up for James Beard. Outstanding really? wine program. I'll be rooting for them. With Frenchette Jorge Riera from okay. the
4: region. So those are all great ones. Anything else? Um Oh, Popina. Uh, we just did our Fausto holiday party at Popina in their garden. So The Irish Mafia making Italian food. O'Neill and McDade making
3: Italian food. It's the funniest thing. They're doing a great job. Even though you had a Jewish mom, you have an Italian last name. So you have some credibility. Um, those are good ones. All right. Last question, and then we're going to taste wine. And we may have answered this, so there may be some backtracking, but think about it. Recommend to me the best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks. Recommend a red and a red red and a white um let me think i just blacked out so my kids are in their 20s they can't afford you know 40 dollars wines they're not going to buy supermarket wine industrial wine so what what would you recommend in that price range i know sicily may have fit it but you know either backtrack or give me some new stuff
4: yeah Uh I would say um, for whites, it's, it's hard to go wrong with Verdicchio, especially this producer, uh, Chloe so Stefano. So v- Verdicchio is a varietal. It's a varietal. Is great. And a maker? Uh, Coli Stefano, Stefano. Um, C-O-L-L-I? C-O-L-L-E-S-T-F-A-N-O. Okay. But I think that's a little bit more of an obvious answer. Maybe Herbaluche I mentioned before. Um, it's not obvious because people are looking at guys like you to get in that range. So
3: Herbaluche
4: and Coli Stefano. Herbal, yeah, Herbaluche is a is a grape from uh, out from northern Piedmont, especially near the, the town uh, near Carema. and uh, there's uh, more and more producers coming in of that. And Grand Cru has a good Who's one. Who's a good Cheek.
2: Herbaluche producer?
4: There's a, one from Grand Cru Imports called Cheek, C I E C K, I believe it's pronounced. Okay. Or it's it's spelled. And it's in that price range. In that price range. Okay. Too. So how about red? And then red, um, we we spoke about Schiavo. We spoke, how about, uh, uh, I know that when James was on his show, he, he mentioned Rosese, which I love. For I think he brought one, one in. Uh, I love that one. Uh, uh, there's so many good Where's Rosese from? From
3: Liguria also. Right, right. It's that, It's a doesn't get the props, but it's a great you know wine from that region. Yeah.
4: Let's go with that. Nothing wrong with that. I love Rosé. How about no? How about let's do a new one? Go ahead. Let's do. Uh, uh, let's do. Let's. We spoke about Chesonese Say. Okay, let's stick with Rousseau. What is it? I've. Have, I've have so many. I, I I feel like. Uh, let's do Palaverga.
3: How about that? Okay. And I'll put Chesonese in. I'll I'll listen and say, previous to this question, we talked about these good value wines. So we have plenty of stuff. All right. That's the five questions. I thought this was a dumb opportunity to ask you a stupid question. Okay. So the question is, because you just devoted a couple of years of your life focused on Italian wines. Desert Island Italian wine. Boom! You're stuck on an island. You get one, maybe two wines. We talked about 20 regions, emerging wines, winemakers, wow. and hopefully this doesn't box you in. Like Ariana Capindi doesn't say, "How come you didn't say my wine?" So how do you answer that question?
4: Uh, I I think the one that comes right to my mind is Valentini Trebbiano di Okay, that's a beauty. Oh, I I'd love that wine all year round. Okay, I love it young. I love it old. I That is, I think, one of the great wines in the world.
3: So then we're going to... That's a terrific answer in all uh, senses. All right. Last and final feature, um, weekly wine sip. We taste a different wine on air every week. Um, Usually winemakers bring in their wines. Certainly guys like you who just wrote a book, Own a Restaurant, Buy Wines. It's nice for you to ask. I appreciate that you brought a wine in. Um, So this week... Set up this wine for me. It's a uh, Mitya Cirque, and take it from there.
4: Yeah, Mitya is, uh, is a friend of mine. His family owns a great restaurant and, um, uh, and inn in Friuli. And Mitya is a, a young guy. He, uh, he started making wine with Yasko Gravner, and he's 13 years old. He's been all around the world. He's worked at Dujac at Rouleau. He worked at 11 Madison Park here in New York. And he plays good. Yeah, just the best. (laughs) Conterno. He worked with Roberto Conterno everywhere. Um, He's made, his first wines were orange wines and now he is, uh, he's making these sort of like really crisp, clean, beautiful wines. And to me, this is exactly the kind of wine that I love. It is the, the most natural possible it's all organic uh, there's no, there's no sulfur in some vintages um but in the glass it is as fresh and drinkable and clean and expressive as you could ever want so
3: let's talk spe- specifics the name of does this wine
4: have a name yeah
3: is it is it
4: let me just make sure. Yeah, it's, it just calls it the Mitea Cirque Bianco. I, okay, want, I so wanted to make sure that I was it's right. It's the
3: Bianco. What's the vintage here on this one? This one's 2020. 2020. And what is the grape, Joe? And it's all Friolano. It's Friolano. Okay. All right. So let's do some evaluation. The color is kind of a mid-beautiful gold, right? Yeah. It's not light, not deep, but it's really beautiful color. Um, I leave it to you. Let's put it up to
4: the schnoz. What do you get on the nose? To me, it's mostly minerality and a little bit of a floral note. Um, I'm—I I have to say, like since my, since my days doing all of the WSET and CMS and all that, which is a long time ago, I like—I'm—I'm I'm less good or less interested in like the particular flavor, you know, the flavor. Also, note. sitting in front of diapers for two years, yeah, right. <laughs> try to try to smell less. Yeah, right. <laughs> all right,
3: so um, be, there were a couple um, mouthfeel. I think we get kind of a medium, you know, it's not a thin wine, it's not unctuous, it's a beautiful feel in the mouth, right? Mm-hmm.
4: And just like a, this really penetrative acidity that is, is persistent, like you, you you keep feeling it, but it's not too sharp at any no, point, right? I
3: think when you get to the palate, you talk about acidity, but when you get to mouthfeel, you get that nice medium feel, and you get that, that acidity right now. Um, what about the palate? Does the palate reflect any of the stuff you said on the... Uh,
4: yeah, I think it continues to be sort of a, a mineral driven lightly floral wine. Um, some, you know, some stone fruit characteristic, but this is and a, a little like bitter almond that I guess you're not yes. picking up on the nose. Yes. Cause that's a little more of a, a mouthfeel thing too. Um, and like a yellow, like a not super juicy pear, like a yellow, uh, right. but not like the ripest right. yellow pear. Um, those are and what I like about it too is it's twelve and a half percent alcohol, and so it's not going to knock you over the head. Right. It's a wine you can that drink you a couple to, of
3: bottles through a meal. Yeah, have it complement the food and not knock you out. Exactly, which is a nice thing. Um, what would we pair this with?
2: Ooh,
4: oh, it's so versatile. Um, so one of the answers it's versatile it's versatile so it's
3: not boxed into
4: and you know that's what i'm usually looking for when choosing wines because uh you know i don't work in a tasting menu restaurant and i don't live in a tasting menu house either so it's usually you need one wine to kind of make you through make you through the make it through the meal um but i think anything from so you know what may be easier what doesn't it go with like what the
3: asparagus i mean what the, probably goes with asparagus
4: yeah well so friolano is also known as sauvignon vert or sauvignon nese and it has some green notes that could complement asparagus i think asparagus might be good maybe if you have like a really meat like you're doing like a bestecca fiorentina or too much it's Not too f- much yeah. uh,
3: so it shows you the versatility of it Pretty much everything but a big bloody red Tuscan steak I or a Florentine so. steak or something. All right. So that is the um, Mica Cirque Bianco uh, 2020, you said? 2020. All right. And I will post that. I didn't mention that. I will post your wine list answers on our social media, and I will also post the wine that we're drinking. Um, Joe, we have to wrap up. We ran very long. <laughs> Matt's given me the boogie eyes. Um, so we got to get out of here. But before we do that, let me just do a quick wrap up. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at the That's sam at the Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please subscribe. Because when you subscribe, you wake up the next day and there's Joe Campanelli in bed with you with his new book telling you about what Italian wines you should be drinking. I mean, why wouldn't you subscribe? Okay, another issue, another show. All right, follow us on Instagram at sbenruby and on Twitter at benruby. I know it could be confusing, but you can always use the hashtag the Grape Nation to find us on both. At Facebook, we're at the Grape Nation. Um, like I mentioned, we'll post Joe's wine list and weekly wine sip on our social media sites. Joe, let's break down a little intel here. Where can we find your new book? We always encourage people to go to independent booksellers, right?
4: You just did a signing
3: where, like last night or? I
4: appreciate it. Yeah. Um, The independent seller that has in New York is Powerhouse Books. They have a location in Dumbo. They have one in Park Slope and one in Industry City. Um, the book's at a bunch of uh, wine retail stores like Slope Sellers and Leon and Sons. Uh, my website, joecampanelli.com, has, has links has links to uh, links to the different retailers that have it, and then also. Our restaurants, Lalu and Fausto, you can buy signed copies through the restaurants. So if you go to the website, lalobrooklyn.com or faustobrooklyn.com, you can buy signed copies through the restaurants.
3: Joe, if I live 14 miles outside of Kansas City, Missouri,
4: I could order it on Amazon? For sure. Okay. You can also order it from Fausto or Lalu. We'll okay. there. Yeah. So
3: go to Fausto or Lalu for support Joe. Um, and then, Joe, if we want to follow you, the restaurants, on social media, where can we go?
4: Yeah, we're on uh, predominantly on Instagram. Um, so, uh, Lalu is at Lalu Brooklyn. L-A- L-A-L-O-U. And then Brooklyn, Brooklyn spelled out. The word Brooklyn, the not B-K-L. Brooklyn. And then Fausto is at Fausto Brooklyn. F-A-U-S-T-O. Brooklyn. Brooklyn spelled out. And then my personal is at Joe Campanelli. And so you can find book events that I'm doing through my personal. So,
3: it's an exciting time to stay on top of Joe because of the book and what he's doing and signings. And the restaurants are more than established. So, it'd be fun to go on those sites too. So, I recommend that. Um, Joe, we got a roll. I want to thank our guest, guest, Joe Campanelli. Thanks to our engineer, as always, Matt, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation.